This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In the last few years, the Catholic Church has received a fair amount of publicity for its conservative stances on issues like abortion, birth control, and gay marriage. These stances, along with the election of the relentlessly traditional Pope Benedict XVI to the papacy in 2005, have left many progressive Catholics feeling somewhat abandoned. But from the 1960s through much of the 80s, the church seemed like it was taking a little bit of a different route. While in the United States and Europe, self-proclaimed Jesus freaks were exploring Jesus's hippie nature, all over Latin America, desperately poor Catholics were exploring a version of their faith that emphasized a decent life, not just a promise of heaven after they died. This stream of Catholic thought was called liberation theology. To some, it was literally a godsend. But to elites in countries like Nicaragua and El Salvador, who were used to having the Catholic Church support, not question, their position— Liberation theology was a major, and likely a communist, threat. This was true to such a degree in El Salvador that in the 1970s and 1980s, several priests, nuns, and Catholic layworkers were assassinated by death squads who were later found to be linked to the Salvadoran state. Years later, it's still astonishing to think of this. And the fact that liberation theology is not as well known as it once was makes the reasons for these killings even more murky. But Michael Lee says that liberation theology still has something to say to us today. Lee is an assistant professor of theology at Fordham, and he is a longtime student of liberation theology. He joins me today on the show to talk about a stream of Catholic thought that, in today's climate, we might have forgotten exists. Michael Lee, welcome. Thank you. Now, tell me, just to start with in this conversation, what is liberation theology exactly? The basic idea of liberation theology is that the truth of Christianity, the truth of the gospel, must include some aspect of human liberation. The New Testament says, what good is it for me to wish my neighbor well and then ignore the fact that they're starving or cold? This is the lesson of liberation theology, that Christianity cannot profess to know or to teach the good news of the gospel without paying attention to the fact that even today, the majority of the world still suffers in poverty and starvation. Uh, Liberation theology says that's a problem, and we need to have a theologos, which in Greek means a word about God. It's the way you talk about God. That has to include human liberation. And I think one of the major insights that liberation theology kind of brings to the table is to move away from a kind of individualistic religion. Sin, for instance, is a great term because for many people, sin has to do with, well, this list of rules, and a sin is a breaking of one of those rules. Here you have liberation theologians come along and say, yes, that's true. Murder is a sin. Lying is a sin. But what if we thought about sin in a broader sense? In other words, that which maybe goes against God's will. And then let's look at planet Earth and ask, is it kind of running along the way God would will it? Do the millions who die of starvation, do those who don't have even water to drink, is that God's will? And if it's not, 
then theologically, can we call it sin? And once we do that, what do we do about it? So you begin to see this uh, kind of circle widen and expand. And so a person of faith not only has the duty to say, pray daily and be good to other people, but to ask the harder questions about where they are in society and what they need to do to, in the language of the gospel, say, many people know the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think liberation theology pushes us to reflect on those lines and ask, well, how do we make uh, the earth resemble more the kingdom? Tell me historically what it has what it has meant. Tell me the story of liberation theology. The story of liberation theology begins, I guess you could say, in the 1960s. Of course, uh, for Roman Catholicism in general, it was a decade of great change. That's when the Second Vatican Council occurred. And for most Catholics, they know that, for instance, the shift from a Latin mass to a mass in the vernacular, all these changes took place. In Latin America, you have theologians trained in Europe, who often had gone to the council itself, came back to their home countries uh, with this vision of a dynamic church, a church engaged with the world and its problems. Of course, living in Latin America, those problems were clearly uh, poverty, starvation, a great divide between rich and poor in their countries. So as the church in general in the 1960s was wrestling with how to relate to the modern world, for these Latin American theologians, the question then became of how does the church wrestle with these problems, engage these problems? And so you have the birth of liberation theology. So liberation theology even then was was quite controversial. Uh, Yes, I think so. I think whenever faith, religion confronts social problems, I mean, look at even uh, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, which is essentially a church-based movement or came out of the black church experience, filled with controversy. Whenever religion's not uh, tame and doesn't get into (laughs) these issues, um, well, then, yes, controversy comes. But in at least one case, liberation theology wasn't just controversial. In the... uh, 1960s, you have an interesting figure in Colombia. His name is Camilo Torres. And he was studying to be a priest, in fact, became a priest, ordained a priest, returns to Colombia, but begins to reflect on the inequality in his country. Eventually, this led him to participate in a guerrilla movement. In fact, he leaves the priesthood in order to join uh, a guerrilla movement and was killed in combat. So you could imagine the fear that many expressed in relation to liberation theology. Is this going to sow the seeds of a bunch of Camilo Torres' priests who are taking up rifles to try to overthrow governments? But I think, by and large, that's a, a kind of caricature. Gustavo Gutierrez, whom many call the father of liberation theology, told me once in a conversation, he said, you know, thinking about Camilo... I reflected that there's got to be another way. And that's why I wrote my book, the book being A Theology of Liberation, the kind of founding document. So while you can understand a kind of controversy around it, you can see also how easily uh, opponents have caricatured liberation theology. 
it's communist, it's violent, it, it espouses uh, overthrow, revolutionary overthrow, so on and so forth. I think by and large, liberation theology is a differentiated movement. You can't talk about it as one thing. There are many liberation theologies. But I think very often the negative picture that a lot of people carry in their minds comes more from their opponents than that are actually based in fact. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we are talking about liberation theology with my guest, Michael Lee. Lee is an assistant professor of theology at Fordham, and his work focuses on a time and place that many of us may remember only dimly through the prism of Reagan-era media coverage. I asked Lee what El Salvador was like during the period that he studies, the 70s and 80s, why liberation theology took root like it did then, and why it was so harshly put down. El Salvador in the 70s or 80s, like many Latin American countries, was characterized by an incredible division between wealthy and poor. It's hard for citizens in the United States to imagine a society that really has no middle class, a society that has a very, very small minority enjoying fabulous wealth, and then an overwhelming majority that suffers in horrible conditions. This was El Salvador at that time, and it had been for many decades. Of course, the 1960s and early 70s brought many liberation movements. You see unrest in a lot of countries, and El Salvador is no exception. There was a contentious uh, presidential election, one characterized by much fraud. And then for the purposes of my studies, you also have this interesting dynamic that's taking place in the Roman Catholic Church. The Church in El Salvador, like many Latin American countries, had traditionally been aligned with the elite, with the government, with the military. Its message often was to be a good faithful Christian and Catholic, one merely kind of lives a passive, docile, obedient life now and then looks forward to uh, an eternal reward. Well, after the changes of the Second Vatican Council and under the leadership of uh, dynamic priests, including a Jesuit priest by the name of Frutilio Grande, you have a different kind of message you have priests telling peasants, no, it's not God's will that you suffer, that you starve, that your children die. God, Jesus, wishes for you to live in a society in which your children aren't going to die early, where you're going to get fair compensation for your labor, where you might even have a small patch of land in order to sustain your family. And not only that, uh, they began to organize peasants. Now, this can be from doing as simple things as teaching them to read and write, teaching them their numbers so they don't get robbed at, uh, at the harvester's scales, to more elaborate uh, things in terms of community organizing and supporting those who are beginning to form labor unions and so on and so forth. Well, to speak of land reform, to speak of organized labor in El Salvador, was deeply threatening to those in power. 
And whenever those in power are threatened, they lash back. And in 1977, you had a historic act. You had a Jesuit priest, Rutilio Grande, driving in a jeep with an old man and a young boy assassinated. Now, there had been peasants killed, but this was the first time that a priest was assassinated, and this created a kind of crisis in the country. At the same time, a new archbishop was being appointed. Now, many of those who were on this, for lack of a better term, progressive side of the church uh, moaned when they heard of the appointment of Oscar Romero as bishop. This was a bishop who had been known as being a conservative, being very close to the elite, and they thought, hmm, more of the same. But in the events of February and March of 1977, with the assassination of Rutilio Grande and his growing awareness of uh, this reality of poverty and of repression, uh, you begin to see a change in Oscar Romero and a change in the archdiocese where suddenly the church begins to advocate more and more for those who are poor speaks out on behalf of those who are disappeared, those who are kidnapped, those who are tortured, calls the government, calls the landowners to be more accountable. So you have in this period at the end of the 70s uh, just a real dynamic period, theologically speaking, in the life of the church there. Now, Oscar Romero is assassinated in 1980, and many people know he's a pretty famous figure. And he was assassinated in a very dramatic way as well. Yes, he was assassinated while saying Mass. Just a day after in his Sunday Mass, which was given at the large cathedral, he called upon the nation's soldiers to put down their weapons. Very dramatic homily. And not 24 hours later, he was shot while saying a a smaller Mass in a hospital chapel. There's also a civil war going on throughout this whole period. Well, the Civil War commences shortly after his assassination. You have a lot of unrest in the late 70s. And then uh, in 1980, you have a coalition of the kind of oppositional groups coming together to form the FMLN, which would be a kind of block guerrilla movement. And then in the 1980s, you have, properly speaking, the Salvadoran Civil War. Horrible time. A lot of destruction to the country's infrastructure and horrible amounts of suffering. It lasts until 1992. Now, in the 80s, in the kind of legacy of Archbishop Romero, you have at the Jesuit University in San Salvador a group of Jesuits who come to its leadership. Uh, Its president, or rector as they call it there, was a priest by the name of Ignacio Ecuria. And he led a team of Jesuits who made what they called social projection the mission of the university. Now, what a social projection means, it means that all the resources of the university, all of that intellectual weight of study, of analysis, of, of surveys, of all, all these resources were marshaled in order to address the social reality of the country, to ask, why are there poor? What is the land distribution in our country? What are the politics, the economics, etc.? that affect our national reality. He and his staff, the team at the UCA, made it their mission to kind of bring out the truth of the reality of El Salvador and make that the center of national debate. And as the war raged on, they also made it their role to try to be the mediating force, to try to bring together 
both the military and the guerrillas and try to get a negotiated settlement to what was an awful civil war. Really courageous figures. In 1989, in November of 1989, a group of these Jesuits, their housekeeper and her daughter, who had just out of safety asked to spend a night at the Jesuit residence, uh, that night and they were pulled from their beds and assassinated by one of the elite battalions of the Salvadoran military. It was an awful scene. In fact, Ignacio Ayacuria himself was shot in the head, his brains intentionally and symbolically blown out to show why it was that these Jesuits were being killed. Ironically, that event, many credit with an end to the Civil War, uh, that event was so shocking, such a dramatic portrayal of the many assassinations, kidnappings, and tortures that had been going on in the country. But here it was to this group of priests, and so many say that that moment kind of turned the tide. To use the phrase that a lot of people use today, that was the tipping point in the Civil War, and shortly thereafter, it would come to a negotiated settlement. It might be useful here to provide some context of how these people came to be thought of as sort of communist agents and why that was enough of a reason to start assassinating them. Mm. For the elite in El Salvador, any questioning of where they got their wealth, how they maintained their wealth, how this unequal distribution in society was maintained... That, that was seen as a threat. And the label communist was a very useful tool. Let's recall this is at the height of the Cold War. And this is right after the Nicaraguan Revolution, which communist guerrillas took control. So the Reagan administration, for one, had put a high priority on making El Salvador the place where uh, communism stops. They were not going to, quote, lose El Salvador. So you have a high priority both within El Salvador and with its greatest ally during the Civil War, uh, the United States, to make sure that anyone who questioned the government was labeled communist and was squashed. The men in control in El Salvador, particularly the figure of Roberto Dovisson, is, uh, is a frightening figure. He was labeled, in fact, by Robert White, the former U.S. ambassador, as a madman. And he, he called Pope Paul VI the communist for some of the things that he wrote. But he was really, really popular at the time in El Salvador. Very charismatic figure. He was the founder of the Arena Party, which is still in control today. But he, after the Civil War and through the Truth Commission that was done by the United Nations after the Civil War has been really uncovered or revealed as the mastermind behind a lot of death squad activity. Were they communists? Well, there were communist groups, but it's a label. Uh, one could make the analogy today to the term terrorist. You can label a lot of people a terrorist, but what, what, does, that really, what does that term really mean? And, and so communist functions in a similar way. I know a woman who was a pastoral worker, and her team decided that they were going to teach peasants in their parish, in their area, how to count. 
The problem was many of them were participating in the coffee harvests. And so they would harvest coffee all day and lug these huge sacks to the scales. They would be weighed and they would be paid by how much they weighed. But many of these peasants didn't even know how to count. So the numbers would be distorted. They could come in with a 90-pound bag, be told that it's 40 pounds, and then would be paid even less than the going rate. So this pastoral team did something as simple as simply teach them how to count. Well, this was seen as communist. Shortly thereafter, this woman was kidnapped and was tortured for several days. She endured all of this because she taught peasants how to count. Is that communism? I think not. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape. On this week's show, you might be finding today's Fordham Conversations a tad intense, but this week's Cityscape is all about relaxing in the city. Places a refuge in New York this week on Cityscape. My guest today on Fordham Conversations is Mike Lee. He's an assistant professor of theology at Fordham, and he joined me for a conversation about liberation theology. During that conversation, we spoke about Archbishop Romero. He's one of the most famous figures to come out of liberation theology, and he's in the process of being canonized in the Catholic Church. But Lee has done a great deal of work about a lesser-known figure, Ignacio Eacuria. He's the priest whose death Lee referred to earlier in our conversation as the tipping point in the Salvadoran Civil War. I asked him what Eacuria might have to say to us today and why he's worth remembering nearly 20 years after his death. Well, I think for many reasons. Uh, uh, one reason is that in his situation in El Salvador, he found himself in a country of deep inequality. He found himself in a country whose media was controlled so much by the elites and by the government that truth did not seem to find its way out. It was covered over. It was distorted. And so he, in his own role, he, he from his place said, I, I, I want to fight this. And so as a university person, he said, I want to dedicate my studies and the resources of this university to uncovering that, to really getting to what our reality is and how we can respond to it in a just manner. He's interesting to theological people, especially because then he brings the weight of the Christian tradition and Christian thought to bear on that in a very critical, cautious uh, way, not one that's overbearing uh, like what many people associate, say, with the religious right here. But if you look at some of the problems in our society, and now I'm talking about the United States, Eacuria is wrestling with many of those. And he's wrestling with them from a position of relative privilege. I mean, he was an intellectual. He was a university president. It wasn't like he was a, a campesino or in the countryside. So that for many in the United States who live in the most powerful country on earth and has resources, I think he, he provides a really interesting model it would seem these days Christianity is sometimes co-opted by an American uh, upward mobility idea that it, it would profit to hear someone like Ayakuria talk about how, for instance, a university puts itself at the service of the poor majority. 
I think there's a lot of people who have a deep amount of compassion for the problems in our society, from poverty to racism, look at the deep concern over environmental issues, and yet they don't know what to do. And particularly, they're often told that their faith or faith itself has nothing to do with those things. I think a yokuria shows a very creative and profound way to bring those concerns together along with a powerful faith that has a lot to speak to our situation. How engaged is the church today with liberation theology, and why is that? Key to answering that question is to always remember that the church is the people of God. So we can talk about the institutional church. Uh, We can talk about church figures in Rome. Uh, So that church is kind of a loaded term. Combine this with the, well, I guess you could say academic attitude. Certainly in academic circles, liberation theology has waned. Um, But that's to be expected in in an industry in which what's new and always finds favor and then on to the next thing. As far as the church itself, though, you'll find many, many communities of faith who are deeply affected by liberation theology. Uh, Liberation theology uh, formed or is characterized very often by what were known as base communities, that is, communities of poor people themselves from the base. And if you look at the spread of liberation theology, it is now not just a Latin American phenomenon, but you can speak about liberation theology in Africa, in Asia, indeed as a worldwide phenomenon. And in each one of these different contexts, it takes on really profound and and interesting ways. A colleague of mine is doing what he calls Dalit theology, and Dalits are the untouchables in the Indian caste system. So here you have in southeastern Asia, in Sri Lanka and in India, a liberation theology, but in a totally different context, and very often in an interreligious context, so that Hindus are thinking through liberation theology, not just Christians. So I'd say its effect is profound. Moreover, much of the language of liberation theology has been absorbed, incorporated, into the general language of church teaching so that, for instance, you'll have a John Paul II or the United States bishops using terminology like the preferential option for the poor. So in that respect, some people say, well, where are the liberation theologians? Well, in many respects, it's been absorbed into the wider church. Now, that's not to be naive to the real resistance that has also taken place. For as much as For instance, John Paul II had a social vision that was not uh, unlike that of many liberation theologians when thinking about the church itself, the church's hierarchy, its power structures. There were often many more conflicts. And so very often, many of the bishops who were appointed by John Paul II have uh, come out as opposed to liberation theology. And I think that's a sad thing. Very often what will happen, say, in some Latin American communities that I know, is that these base communities that were such a powerful force are now alienated from parishes. A pastor or a bishop will say, no, 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 not here, and will, will force them, marginalize these communities. Now, the communities stay 
intact, but they just don't have that contact with the institutional Catholic Church, which I think impoverishes the Catholic Church. And then as time goes on, you have a rewriting of history that goes on, and, and again, you have these caricatures of liberation theology. Oh, it's Marxist, period, that make their way as truisms. Uh, it's unbelievable to me just even recent discussions about liberation theology and looking at a few blogs online, how people just took it as a matter of fact that uh, liberation theologians were all Marxists. Well, that's simply not true. But if enough voices and enough powerful voices say it over and over again, it becomes a truism. So that's why I think it's important to keep studying liberation theology and to keep investigating it. Well, Michael Lee, thanks so much. Thank you. From WFUV, this has been Ford and Conversations. If you missed part of the show, or if you'd like to hear it again, there are a couple ways to go. It's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.